But let's open up in a word of prayer and give this time over to the Lord. Dear Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. We thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for walking with us in good times in life and hard times of life. We pray that you be glorified as we as we think about your church, as we think about all that you've done over the centuries to bring us to this point. And I pray, Lord, that you help us at this point to be the church that you want us to be, that you've sculpted your body um, to be not only on this corner, but over the centuries. I give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, woo! Um, as we've been going through church history, obviously we're... Uh, we're, we're in, the, in the Reformation, and we've slowed down a bit to hit a lot of this in detail because this is kind of a pivot point uh, for a lot of different reasons. And in part because so many people have um, so many preconceived notions about the Reformation. Uh, we, we, people either don't think about it much at all, or we think about it as a time when everything got cleaned up after those horrible dark ages. You should stop thinking about that. Don't ever think about it that way now. Um, or we think about it as this time when wonderful theologians sat around over coffee and talked about theology and got smarter. Um, and, and really, when we've been looking at it, hopefully you see it's, it's still kind of a grungy time with things, and it's a lot of people killing one another. Um, some of the stuff they're talking about is crucially important, though. Not, not something you should be killing each other over, but it is the sort of stuff that we're still dealing with today as to uh, at what point do you say... We're brothers in Christ, and though we disagree, we can work through this. At what point do you say we're brothers in Christ, we disagree, we can't worship together because we disagree so strongly? And at what point do you say, no, nope, I hate you because you think differently than I do? These are things that we still work through in, in the church, and increasingly, I would say, even in the last couple of years, if you've been paying attention at all, um, we're getting more and more militant about religion around the world. Not just... Um, not just Islamic extremists here or there. Um, Australia is deciding that it's trying to control its religion. Um, the United States, we're trying to control what we're doing as religion. Um, I was just reading an article, I was talking about this the other day, I was just reading an article, um, I was talking about how China has banned a, a bunch of American television because it's trying to censor our immorality from going into China. And the article's like, well, that's just ridiculous. It's censorship. Ah, oh, those, those silly Chinese. They're censoring, like, Big Bang Theory. That's just a comedy. It's nothing. It's no big deal. But the whole point is that, that China's like, the, the morality of this show is, is pretty horrible. And the article's like, but so China is going, no sex, no violence, no adultery on TV. Those are all the things that America loves. We live in a world where increasingly we're getting militant about this. So how do we deal with it? This is a time of wars of religion, where people are slaughtering each other, right and left, specifically, in large part, because of religion. For instance, we ended last time saying that about 1560 is when the French wars of religion kicked in, right? <coughs> so let's, let's talk about that. Trouble's been brewing for a while, and we've talked about this already, that back in 1542, King Francis of France has... Had uh, done a massacre in, in, in the city of Malindol, killed thousands of Waldensians, flung them off of, uh, of, of walls, and dashed them to their deaths because they didn't agree with them religiously. I mean, it's the Catholic Church versus the Waldensians. 
since the 1530s, we've got a, a movement called the Huguenots. Um, there's a whole bunch of different arguments as to where that name came from, so I'm not even going to waste your time with those because we have no idea. Um, but there are Calvinists in France. And they've been growing to the point that by the time you get to 1560, there's over a thousand Huguenot churches in France. Even though they keep getting offed by French kings, there's still a thousand churches. This is getting to be a huge movement. Well, Henri, the new king, doesn't like the Huguenots at all. He sees himself as this, as this staunch Catholic king, and he, his dad tried to off all the Waldensians. There's still Waldensians sitting around. He says, I'm going to try to off all the Huguenots. But then he dies. 1559. He's playing around. He's doing a jousting tournament. And he gets jousted to death. Funny how that goes when you ride quickly at somebody with a pointy stick. Every once in a while they die, right? I don't want to be that guy that jousted the king. Yeah, no. <laughs> that, was, that would not be a good idea. And this is part, this is part of why they, you don't see a lot of jousting after 1559. <laughs> you kill a king jousting, everybody goes... I think we're done with this game. You know, I think this isn't fun anymore. Actually, yeah. Because people have been dying in jousts all the time. And they very well might have been doing it for a while after this, but nope, not anymore. Anyway, he was succeeded by his teenage son, Francis II, who was not only physically weak, but he was personally a very weak king. So what do you do? Well, does it? Okay. He was sickly, but he has, a, uh, his, he has a consort, Mary, Queen of Scots. Remember her from last time? She's a little older. She's a, a, a healthier person. So she essentially runs France, which is ironic, right? Why is that ironic? What do you remember she about... her own country. <laughs> well, yeah, she's struggling with her own country. What do you know about her when she was younger? She got um, displaced, right? I mean, like, she got called illegitimate. No, 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 no. That's the other Mary. That's why we spent time... I know it's confusing. Three Marys at the same time. There was Mary, Queen of Scots. There was Mary Tudor, who you were talking about. And who was the third Mary? The mother. Mary, Mary Queen of Scots. Okay. Mary de Guise, right? I was one of their mothers. But <laughs> Mary de Guise ran Scotland. So this French consort queen ran Scotland for her daughter, Mary Queen of Scots. And now this Scottish queen, Mary Queen of Scots, runs France for... This this uh, this young man. So is Mary Queen of Scots living in France? Though? Sometimes. Okay. Yeah. How old is Mary Queen of Scots? Uh, she was sixteen or seventeen at the time that he was fifteen. Oh, there's this show oh, wow. on the CW that I don't really watch. It's called Rainbow. Yeah, don't. Um, it's not a good show. <laughs> I, I don't. I mean, I've seen like half an episode, maybe, as I'm flipping channels. Yeah. Is really inaccurate, or just also really immoral too. Okay. So, <laughs> so you've got, you got a, a geese coming back and running the country. Remember she's, you had Mary de Guise, the, the house of geese. Now we've got Mary Queen of Scots, Mary de Guise's daughter, running the country. Suddenly, the house of geese is really powerful. I mean, they're basically running the country. Even though they don't have a blood succession to the, to the throne, they're running the country. That's important, don't you think? It's kind of big. All right, 1560, because technically we're in 1560, right? Faction of Huguenots led by a guy named Godfrey de Renoli, uh, de la Renoli, uh, plotted a conspiracy to kidnap the king and to arrest him. This is like a 
Dumont novel. He's like, we're going to kidnap the king, we're going to arrest the geese, we're going to put a Calvinist on the throne, the world will be a happy place, right? We're fixing this. Because the geese family, they, they don't even have a blood succession, and they're running the... No, it's just wrong. Didn't even remotely work. I mean, just horrible, stupid planning. Everybody knew about it long before they ever did anything. So they, they actually trickled into the town to do this, and as they trickled in, they just kept getting quietly arrested. Yeah? They have a really neat little shield, though. Don't they? The geese family? Oh, yeah. Well, every, I mean... Oh, yeah. They're looking impressive. They are. Well, the Huguenots have a really cool-looking cross, though. I like that I thing. Like Every part of this is symbolic of stuff. Look it up sometime. It's interesting. Anyway. So the... Oh, this looks weird. Let's try this again. So the bodies of... Yeah, there you go. The bodies of... Um, <laughs> I don't have the words. Oh, I can, apparently can only have one or the other. The bodies of his 1,500 followers are left on iron hooks outside the castle of Amboise. And Le Renaudy uh, himself is drawn and quartered. Um, I don't know if you know what that means, but it means you're, you're disemboweled, emasculated, eviscerated, they pull all your stuff out, they chop you into four pieces, and they try to keep you alive throughout all of that. Uh, yeah, so anyway, so you, you, they leave you in four parts, thus quartered. Um, but anyway, wacky fun that. And, and they did that for everybody to watch so that everybody says, don't do this. Okay? One of the people who was arrested on suspicion was actually Prince Louis, who was of the House of Bourbon. See, this is just Lord de Lise, right? This is, this, this is actually the royal bloodline. So, the House of Bourbon, who's a rival to the geese. Because the geese are powerful, but not part of the bloodline. The Bourbon, part of the bloodline. You go, okay. And they're like, this guy could actually technically become king sometime. And they said, well, he's, we find him innocent, or at least we couldn't, we couldn't find any charges that stick against him. So we had to let him go. But this is not going to sit well with the House of Bourbon. And you've you got House of Geese and Bourbon. They've been rivals, but you go, now they hate each other. They hate each other a whole <laughs> lot of hateness. Now... There's a reason why they thought that he might have had something to do with it. Years ago, he had been he had defended geese. Actually, he had been out there uh, fighting in the Lorraine uh, and holding off the Holy Roman Emperor Carlos V because he's still around. Carlos V is like almost 50 years that he's the emperor. So Carlos V had tried to invade the Lorraine, and and, and uh, Louis had been part of the defense of this. And as he came back, he passed through Geneva, and he heard a sermon by a Calvinist preacher. He was very moved by this. And, it, and it, it changed his life. Now, there's a lot of debate about whether Louis actually became a Calvinist. Was he a Huguenot by 1560? I don't know. There's some arguments that he was, some arguments that he wasn't a Huguenot, but he was definitely moved by this preacher and says, boy, this is a this seems to have religion. We don't seem to have religion. So was he who they wanted to put on the throne then? Not necessarily. But possibly. There's no direct connection between Louis and the Amboise, the conspiracy. Huguenots were Calvinists. Huguenots Calvinists. They were French Calvinists. Um, he was totally a Calvinist after his arrest. Whether or not he was a Huguenot before, <laughs> after he was arrested as, 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 
part of the Huguenot conspiracy? He's like, oh, I'm totally a Huguenot now. In fact, he became the leader of the Huguenots in, in, in France. So that's kind of a big thing. It's one of those things where you sit there and you go, maybe we misstepped here. You know, maybe taking this war hero who's in line with the throne and saying, I think you're a rotten human being, we're going to throw you in prison. Maybe all that did was turn him against us. I don't know. Maybe that was ill-considered. So, 1560, Francis dies anyway. After all this work to try to, to kidnap him, take him off the throne, you go, he's, the kid dies. And so the little brother, Charles IX, takes the throne. They do, don't they? Yes, this paintings were painted by the same painter. Okay? <laughs> so for those of you going, uh, are you sure it's not the same kid? Yes, I'm sure it's not the same kid. <laughs> Triple checked it. It's not the same kid. But it is the same artist. All of them had the same mom. And you can see a family resemblance here. Different artist. But, it, but the same mom, Caterina de Medici. So this isn't just... The Guise family, this is the Medici's involved. So you got the Medici's and the, and the Guise family and the Bourbons all involved in this at the same time. This is going to get messy, right? It's already messy. It's already messy. But with these particular families, you just go, oh, there's no way that this is going to come off just getting sticky, ugly. So, 1562. Francois de Lorraine, in other words, the guy from the house of Guise, because Guise are over in Lorraine. Francois decides that he's going to burn a Huguenot church with all the people in it. So, uh, what, 60 people died, over 100 people are, are severely injured. This is nasty. And Louis says, aha, this is what I'm looking for. He uses it as a pretext to liberate Charles IX. He's like, ah, like, we, like somebody, and it wasn't necessarily me, two years ago had an idea about the last king, we're going to liberate Charles IX. We're not, kidnapping, we're not kidnapping him. We're liberating him from his corrupt advisors and his horrible regent. And we're going to lay siege to Orléans. We're starting a fight. We're starting a war. And so civil war in France begins over this. A war of religion between Calvinists and Catholics that lasts for over 30 years. A quarter of the population of France dies. Nasty, nasty, nasty. Hugely pivotal. Okay, so we're going to have to be talking about this going on in the background for the next, well, at the very least next week, too. 1560, though, same year that the Ottomans, because remember, the Turks are going up. Remember, all this green, this is all one group. The Ottoman Turks, this Muslim faction that's moving and growing, they fought the Battle of Jerba. If you remember from last week, you got Philip II of Spain trying desperately to marry an English king. Married one, she died, tried to marry the next one, she didn't want him. But he saw that the Ottomans are growing hugely. Not the least of which, they took over Spanish held Tripoli. He's like, that's not good, that's our holdings. So we got to do something about this, right? we got to fix this. And so he says, Pope, hey Pope, remember the Pope Sourpuss from last week? Pope Paul IV, he's like, hey Pope. <sighs> yeah, he was, he was just grumpy. Uh, he's like, Pope. Let's have a crusade. I think all Christendom needs to come back and help us get Spanish Tripoli back. For Jesus, right? Had nothing to do that it's just a Spanish territory over there in the Mediterranean. It's the only one we got over there now. Uh, and, and remember, Spain is trying desperately to control Africa. 
And they've got a whole bunch of things on this west coast because the Pope originally gave them Africa. But they're starting to lose all of North Africa. And he's like, no, 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 give us Africa. And so the Pope says, sure. Almost 200 Spanish ships sailed for Tripoli in 1560. We're going to take it over. They hit freak storms. Everybody gets sick. It's nasty. So Can you check the weather? Internet was down. <laughs> okay, so fleet gets decimated. That happens every time somebody, you know, a lot of times I know. Well, remind me in 28 years, we're going to talk about the Spanish Armada and not checking the weather again. But, um, but so they, they couldn't go to Tripoli. They're like, we're not just going to go pound on Tripoli. We're not strong enough. We're going to stop at the island of Jerba for a little bit. We're going to recoup. The little fort there, take a breather, drink some orange juice. It'll be good. But they didn't realize that, that there was already a flotilla of ships coming from Istanbul to Jerba at the same time. So they get there and they're like, oh, okay, we're just going to, we're all sick, we're all tired, we're just going to chill. They had no clue that fresh troops are coming in from, from uh, Istanbul. Turkish fleet under a guy named Piali Pasha totally surprised them, annihilated them, killed 18,000 guys, took 5,000 guys prisoner. Huge. And suddenly, because the Spanish had to go back and lick their wounds and say, we've we got to rebuild a whole navy and all this kind of stuff, Spain goes, all right, we're out of the running for a while. And that means the Ottoman Turks now control all the Mediterranean. We control the Mediterranean Sea. Not only do we control Eastern Europe, do we control the Middle East, do we control Northern Africa, now we control the seaways. That's kind of huge. This is kind of big. And so in 1565, the Ottomans say, tell you what, we, we control this, now we're going to try for Malta. Now, it may not seem like a big deal to you, because it's just a little, little bitty island. But it's a little itty bitty island that's not far from North Africa, and it's not far from Sicily. And the big thing is, is it's Europe again. It's not just North Africa. And so in this pincer move, what the Ottomans are trying to do is take over everything bit by bit by bit. So 48,000 Turks coming from, from Tripoli attack a garrison of 700 knights at Malta. That's just not fair. I mean, that's just not fair. It's like, it's like when we invaded you know, Grenada and stuff. It's like, it's, it's like kicking over a fruit stand. Um, not just knights, but these are the last of the knights' hospitaller. Do you remember these guys from the Crusades? These are the last Crusaders left. Um, if you remember, you know, we had a whole bunch of guys going eastward to fight the, the, the Muslims. These are the last guys doing that. The Templars are gone now. All these, other go these guys are still around, but they've evolved. And we need to clarify this. They don't look like this anymore. Even this, well, here, I'll do it this way. They pull back to the island of Malta. This is where they've made their headquarters here. And they're the guys that lost Tripoli back in, in 1551. But that's why this thing became known as the Maltese Cross, or why the Knights Hospitaller are sometimes called the Knights of Malta, because they've made this their, their eastward-bound base. With, and then that's pretty much all that they've done is they've kind of they've kind of dug in there, and they focus on building up their their influence and building up their wealth in Europe. Because if you remember, these are the guys that provided centuries of medical aid for Christian knights, regardless of nationality. Right? We're neutral. If you're a Christian knight, if you're on crusade, we will provide hospitality. We'll provide shelter for you. If you're sick or hurt, we will provide care for you, which is cool. But that's where we get the words, 
I mean, the Knights Hospitaller being, being hospitable, that's where we get the words hospital, hotel, um, youth hostel. All those come from the same root of these guys working for things. Anyway, even their emblem has evolved over time. It developed a red background instead of just a black background like it started. And it even simplified over time to the point where eventually their battle standard looks a lot like what we think of as the flag of Switzerland, right? Yeah. And their knights looked more like this now. This is, this is 16th century knights uh, of, of Malta. Well, that's the reason for that. What with the musketeers being in the early 1600s? You know, so this is, this is that era of, of, of night. Now, there's an argument that's been made that because the knights had so much wealth and had focused so long on being neutral, they were in large part behind the creation of the neutral banking system that was Switzerland. You know, Switzerland became the bankers of Europe, the neutral bankers of Europe. So there's good reason why it looks like the Swiss flag, because apparently they're at least potentially tied together, which is kind of interesting. 1863, you get a Swiss army officer named Guillaume Henri Dufour. In fact, you see the little Swiss band, armband there? This is an armband going, hi, I'm Swiss. Anyway, and a Swiss social activist named Henri Dunant uh, proposed setting up an international committee to help wounded soldiers, just like the Knights Hospitaller did. Regardless of nationality, I don't care who they are, I don't care which side they're on, we're going to take care of them on the battlefield. That's, that's only right. Too often people just get hurt and then nobody's there to help them. So they proposed a new neutral symbol that's nobody's flag. It's a neutral symbol that when you see that, you know this is where you get fair and unbiased support. What? The Red Cross. The Red Cross on a white field. Which looks suspiciously Swiss, if you ask me, right? <laughs> Seriously, because this is just the Swiss flag reversed. See, that's what, when you said Swiss flag, I was like, that's a great cross to me. Well, there's a reason why it's that. And you understand why in Muslim countries they use a crescent. Because they're like, oh, I totally know where that, Swiss, where that red cross on a white background The red cross on a white background, that's what the Templars wore in, 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 in the Crusades. Red cross on the white background, that's just the flip of what the Hospitallers wore. Every time I see that, I don't think, oh, fair and unbiased care. I get why they would go, okay, I'm going to do a Red Crescent, but they're missing the point of what was trying to happen there. And ironically, that means that Red Cross and Red Crescent become partisan things. You know, if you see a Red Crescent, well, that's, that's these guys, Red Cross. If you see a Red Cross, well, that's those guys, Red Crescent. You say, well, it kind of undermines the whole point. But, oh, I get it. I get it. Anyway, but we're back here in 1565. All right. The Turks say, okay, what we need to do is um, grab Malta. That's how, if we can take Malta, because it's got like three forts on it. Uh, if we can grab and hold Malta, this is awesome, because you can take the rest of Sicily, and if you take Sicily, you can take Naples. If you take that, you're, you're a hop, skip, and a jump from the Papal States. The Purple States, right? Yeah. Um, we, we can take over Europe easily from here. In fact, Queen Elizabeth said, I'm scared. Seeing them actually poised for Malta, if the Turks should prevail against the Isle of Malta, it's uncertain what further peril might follow the rest of Christendom. She's like, if they take Malta, everything falls. I mean, it's, it's a domino effect. It's just, it, it's um, tactical physics. If you've ever played Risk or if you've ever played Diplomacy, there are certain things where you go, if you can take this and this and this, 
you're probably going to win. Unless you get like the worst dice rolls ever, you're probably going to win. Um, if you're playing chess and you say, okay, I just took your queen. It's like, okay, it doesn't mean you're going to win, but you're probably going to win at this point. If you're on the roll with this kind of stuff. So did they know, like did they know quite a bit in advance that they were going to try for Malta? Or? Well, I mean, when they, when they realized that, that all the Spanish and other little holdings around here that they were taking all those things, that's the next logical step. So everybody was pretty sure that that's where they were going. Um, so there's no, there's no Spanish fleet. There's no other fleet protecting Malta. I mean, it's got three nice, big, good forts, but uh, it's going to be relatively easy. Piali Pasha is really good at this. This is going to fall. He didn't count on a guy named Jean Perrault de Vallette, the Grand Master of the Order, that he would be sitting there on Malta leading the defense. He'd been a naval hero, but he'd also been wounded in battle. He'd been taken to the Turkish galleys and had been a galley slave for a while, learned how the Turks think, learned their battle tactics and things. Ultimately, he's the one who led the disastrous attempt to retake Tripoli, but again, it wasn't his fault. I mean, bad weather, everybody got sick, and then he got surprised. There's no way he could have known that there was already a fleet sailing there. But by the time that the Turks attacked Malta, He's 70 years old. Do you remember this 70-year-old defender of Vienna? When we talked about the siege of Vienna, that there was a 70-year-old guy who came around and said, could you help us? And he totally turned back the Turks. Okay. This is, what, 36 years later, repeat of this. You go, 70-year-old guy leading the, the charge. So, Pasha gets here and, and, and attacks Fort, Fort St. Elmo. The first fort on the on the on the on the beach takes over that takes over the surrounding villages loses two thousand men in the process but he still has forty six thousand guys but he, he he takes over the fort and the next morning the 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 hospitallers in Fort uh, San Angelo look out and see floating in on the tide fifteen hundred crosses to which are nailed the decapitated bodies of fifteen hundred Christians this is Bialy Pasha going. Psych. You know, we just took Fort St. Elmo. We killed everybody. We killed everybody in the villages. Oh. So there weren't just 700 knights. There were people living There's there. people living on Malta, oh. yeah. Uh, but there were 700 knights sitting in Fort St. Angelo. So you got, you got 1,500, 1,500 crosses of decapitated bodies. What does that do for your morale? You wake up one morning. You know that, you know that you've heard that the Muslims might be coming to Malta. You might have even heard that they were attacking Fort St. Elmo. The next morning you see 1,500 crosses floating in on the tide, covered in, in, in Christian bodies. Yeah? Kind of like uh, what happened over in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Well, that's another story. But yes, it is kind of like, okay, but what does that do to your, what does that do to your morale? It makes you either really sad and depressed or really angry. Mm-hmm. What are you going to say? I was going to say. Yeah, you're either going to sit there and go, we're toast. I mean, there's only 700 of us. Granted, like you said, there are people in the countryside. And at Fort San Angelo, they're like, okay, everybody living nearby come into the fort. So they got a couple of thousand townsfolk and things. But 700 combatants, 700 knights. You, you sit there and you go, we're all going to die. We're going to die bad. Or you do what the Vallette did. He had all the island's Muslim prisoners decapitated and then fired the heads back at the, at the Muslims. This is what... This is the way this battle is going. It's it's that kind of a fight. 
We used to the, the, that whole rules of war thing. It's gone. There is none of that now. So you would think that 42, 46, depending on, the, on, on, on who you talk to, 42,000 Turks could have made quick work of 700 defenders. It just doesn't work like that. The Vlad had built up Malta's defenses. The walls are like 20 feet thick in, in some places. This is huge. And he also is this innovator. He's like, I'm going to make use of every technology I can possibly think of. We're going to use grenades. We're going to, we're going to uh, throw these things at the, at, 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 at the uh, Muslims. We've got a little bit of time to prep our ground before they get from Sport St. Elmo here to St. Oh, yeah, like a day. So we prep the ground. Start by, we were going to make a ton of grenades. And so we're lobbing these things from the walls all over the place. Second, we use these things called fire lances, or they call them the trump. This trumps everything. Um, and it's filled with, the only way I could describe it would be uh, like a, a, a Renaissance-y, Reformation-era version of napalm. And so you've got this, this tube, you light it, and it sprays this rosin filled with gunpowder and other flammable things that sticks to everything and doesn't stop burning. So it really is like napalm. And you just go, shoot, and you shoot it at somebody, and it, it, it's a flamethrower. I can see where this would this would trump everything. <laughs> if you only get one shot of it, it's really hard to fill and everything, but that's a, it's a pretty impressive shot. They also invented something. They came up with these flame hoops. What they did was... Um, they, they would take a, like a metal hoop or a wooden hoop, they'd wrap it with flammable material, soak it in, in flammable stuff. They put pitch and, and, and oil and things all over the ground in front of, of Fort San Angelo. And then when the Muslims are there and they're marching through these, the, this gooey, flammable field, they'd set these things on fire, roll them down to the field. Took out hundreds. With, with these things. And you can imagine, if you saw dozens of these, about hundreds of these rolling down the hill at you, that would be scary, wouldn't it? That would mess with you. Dvalat um, was also, he was kind of a gambler, and he was willing to do some things you wouldn't ordinarily think are smart. For instance, near the end of the siege, the Turks spent weeks building this nasty siege tower. They're like, we're getting, okay, we can't get through the wall, we're going over the wall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was the order of events. Yeah. <laughs> see now, see now. If you were my era, you might. Go, Did they see Masada? You know, this is this is this is where this is coming. But anyway, they built this this big siege engine, and and you sit there and you go, well, um, this is this is going to do it. It's it's got it's got armored plating here, so it's not like you can just use your your trumps at it and set it on fire. What do you do? And they so they. They built it, and then they rolled it up to the wall. What they didn't realize is as they were building it and as they were rolling it up to the wall, the Vallette actually had his engineers digging through his own wall. Remember, it's like 20 feet thick. And, and so he's like, they can't breach the wall, so we'll breach our own wall. They figured out where they were going to wheel it up to. And they spent days digging <coughs> through the wall so that when this thing was placed up against the wall, that's when the Vallette and his engineers broke through with their own cannon and blew up the siege tower. <laughs> awesome. Wow! These just go, that's amazing! That is, you actually dug through your own wall so that you could blow this thing up from the base? Can you imagine spending weeks working on this as the most, <gasps> they go, aha, we will finally win, go, boom, thing falls over, they're like, that's not right! Because you can't foul! You can't do that! 
<laughs> well, arguably yeah, so. You can make that argument. <laughs> I'm sorry, what are the worst? It is, especially if you've got people who are thinking outside the box. Or if, like with the Spanish group going to Tripoli, or Napoleon at Waterloo, you go, well, the weather really wasn't on your side, was it? You know, Every once in a while, there will be something we say that has nothing to do with how good you are, or how smart you are, everything to do with chance or God's sovereignty, however you want to view that. How did they figure out where they were going to line it up to the wall? You know, Actually, that would be a bit of a gamble, yeah. That's a, it is a gamble. Like, what if they dug through the wrong corner? Shoot! They, they, they would <laughs> have a tower like that when they build it. Yeah. And with and with any defenses of any kind, I don't care whether you're talking about a, um, a, a fortress or a chess game or a game of football, any defenses you go, all right, I know where our weak points are. If you're a good coach or a good um, leader, you're going to go, if I were to do this, this is where I would do this. And as Randy's saying, you go, something this big, it's only going to go straight. It's going to go up a path, so they probably—I don't—I didn't read about this, but they probably built a path or, or pounded out a path, kind of like the Romans did at Masada. You go, the only place the thing is actually going to work is right by that rampart. That's that's where this thing has got to go. Hey, I have an idea. We already know where they're going. We know we can't do this or this. What can we? Do? What is possible? And then taking it out. So again, much of battle, again, or a football game or a chess game is. What do I think they're going to do? And how do I make sure that they can't do that? Or, if you're Tavalet, how do I let them do that? And then thwart it. How do I build a trap for them? Anyway, ultimately, the Hospitallers killed 30,000 Turks. 46, 42,000 Turks versus 700 guys, and 700 guys if you've ever seen the movie like 300, if you've ever studied something about like the, the 300 Spartans at Thermopylae, you go, what if they won? 300 guys standing in a pass against 50,000 Persians. You go, right. 700 guys standing against almost 50,000 uh, Turks. And they win. This deserves a movie. Somebody should make a movie about this. This is one of my favorite battles of all time. This thing drags on for months. The morale of the Turks plummets. Nobody wants to be there anymore. And they're like, We've killed a dozen guys. We've lobbed over 140,000 cannonballs in there, and they just shoot them back at us. We can't beat them. And so eventually, Piali Pasha goes, I need to leave. I, I can't beat these guys. I, I've, I've got, what, 1,500 guys left? Of the 48,000 I started with? I probably need to leave, or, or 15,000, 15, I guess. I, I need to leave. And so he withdraws to the Aegean, and Europe is saved by 700 guys standing on one little island. This is huge. This is a huge pivot point. If Malta had fallen, Sicily might have fallen. Sicily falls, Naples falls. If Naples falls, the Papal States fall. This just is a domino effect of, of, of Europe and Christendom getting taken over by Islam. It's hard to overstate the importance of this particular battle. Since they have all that grain there, um, uh, by Europe there, uh -huh. why couldn't they just keep coming that way? Well, um, they're worrying about the Mediterranean. Well, because there's like a holy Roman Empire here with lots of troops, and they keep they keep betting, they they keep making inroads. They keep taking more and more and more. But they're like, okay, there's only so much we can do because they 
They've made what amounts to a Maginot line along here, holding us back. But if we go this way, if, and if we can just keep attacking from the sea, we keep taking all the ports and things, then they're going to have to start diverting troops this way, which means they're not going to have as many troops this way, which means now we can, again, if you've ever played Risk or Diplomacy or Chess, you can say, I've only got so many pawns. I've only got so many troops. I can only defend on so many fronts. If they're actually now coming from the south, I have to divert some of my troops down there. Everything is weakened. Things eventually fall. How long does it take populations to recover after babies? Um, that's a good question. Birth rate is not spectacular, but people are trying really hard to make lots of babies. So. Oh, So it, this is a time when most women realize you're probably going to lose two or three out of every three or four children that you have. It's just, they're just not even going to survive infancy. You, you, your, your husband goes off to war, you go, hey, he's probably going to die. You just, yeah, that's the way this normally goes. So yes, there's PTSD, but there's less. The irony is there's less stress when you just live in horror. When you just get used to it, when you go, I just expect my children to die. When they do, it's not as, what just happened? You go. Yeah, that's the third one to have died. Which doesn't, I'm not saying that you get jaded to it, but you are more jaded than the person that says, I expected all my children to live. All right, 1571, the Ottomans still on the move fight the Battle of Lepanto over here, because remember they went over to the Aegean. But before I go there, i got to say other stuff is going on. Yes, there's a whole wars of religion going on in France. Yes, the Turks are in the Mediterranean. Lots of stuff going on there. But there's other stuff going on too. And so I want to remind you, while this is, those are the big news, those are the, the headlines, there's other things on page two and five of the other papers. 1569, uh, Metropolitan Philip II of Moscow. If you remember that uh, the Metropolitan is basically their version of an archbishop, uh, the, the archbishops who are running the Russian Orthodox Church. Philip II of Moscow is strangled by a guy named Malyuta Skurotov, who is uh, part of Ivan the Terrible's Oprichniki. Remember when we talked about the Oprichniki, the secret police, the assassination squad? that Ivan came up with. Um, Ivan was using the Oprichniki to torture, remove his rivals. Uh, they would come in the middle of the night, drag you out of your home, and you'd just never be seen again. Uh, in the city of Novogorod alone, they killed nearly 15,000 people that way. So he's killing thousands and thousands and thousands of his own people. And not just fighting them, not just dragging them out and throwing them off the walls like Henri and Francis are doing with the Waldensians. Coming in the middle of the night, dragging you out of your bed, and your, your, your family is screaming, don't take dad, don't take dad, and then they slam the door, and you're not even allowed to talk about him again. If, if, the, if the next day you say, I want to find out about my dad, what happened to my dad, middle of the night, you disappear. You go to the magistrate, and you go, I, I'm not making waves. I don't want to make a big to-do. I'm not a rebel. Just curious to know if my business partner is coming back. You disappear in the middle of the night. So over time... Everybody just lives in terror of the Oprichniki. It's like, just, and they're not even an official group, officially. It's just Ivan's buddies, his brown shirts, that are going and doing all this. So, Philip, the, uh, the, the Metropolitan says, this is wrong. And so there's, a, there's a, a Lent in 1569 where he says publicly, Ivan, Tsar, you're wrong. This is murder. This is immoral. You have to stop this. 
how do they build their country and, you know, get the things they need made and all that stuff that they just keep killing people? They got a lot of people. And you say, now it's up to you guys to make stuff. You don't want to make us mad, do you? You still have to make quota, right? Because otherwise you're obviously not supporting the Tsar. Pay for something to happen to you. Nazis did this all the time. Nazis were one of the most efficient nation-states ever. Fear works. Read Machiavelli's The Prince. Fear works swell for a relatively short period of time. It's the best, most efficient way of making people do things in the short run. Long run, it doesn't last. People either become numb and worn out, or they say, enough of this. But for a decade or two, fear works awesome. Anyway, look at North Korea. Look at China. Look at different places where it's like, yep, fear, fear keeps people in line really, really well. Anyway, so Yvonne has Philip arrested on charges of sorcery and immorality. What? I don't have to have proof. He's just a sorcerer and he's immoral because I said so. He's a witch. Uh, he turned me into a new. Force the bishops to defrock uh, Philip uh, and, and, and publicly deny him on pain of getting disappeared in the middle of the night. Two days before Christmas, Skodotov gains entry into Philip's cell and strangles him. Probably on Ivan's board. By the way, Philip realized that he probably wasn't going to see the New Year, and so he actually asked for a special communion at, like a day or two prior to this. So he's like, I need to confess all my sins because I'm pretty sure I'm not going to survive. They've arrested me. They've thrown me in a cell. They're not going to let me keep living. It's just not going to happen. And even though you go, oh, but how? You weren't convicted of heresy. They can't kill you for that. It's like, uh-huh. This is Yvonne. He's psycho. He's a nut job. I will die. No. No. Nothing political about it other than, I don't like you. Please stop telling me I can't kill people. Is this the same guy we call Ivan the Ivan the Terrible. Okay. Is he the one also where that's when they built the, um, <coughs> the mosque thing, or not mosque, the, the big building? The Kremlin? Thing. Yeah. I don't know. Is I that or is that uh, Peter later on? I just I remember, know. I thought I heard something like from Ivan the Terrible that when they put, the guy that designed it and was really in charge of building it, he took him in and said, is this the most beautiful thing you've ever built? Because yet, do you think you could build anything better? And he said, Maybe so, and so they plucked his eyes out to make sure he could never build anything out. Okay, if that happened, it probably was Yvonne. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, you know, it was like one of those little moments, like uh, on the radio. You know, yep. Like, I, this is yeah. well. If you remember Yvonne and uh, an amazing number of pictures, he looks like that. Um, if you if you remember Yvonne, this is the guy that killed his own son accidentally. He was so angry and he beat him to death, and then felt really bad about it afterwards. So, yeah. Apparently, Yvonne is a hockey player. Oh, because he's got the hockey stick? Yeah. Yeah. He's mm -hmm. from a cold place, so. <laughs> we all know yeah. hockey players. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> hockey hate. Stop it. Okay. Where was I going with this? I don't know. Um, same year, a guy named Dirk Willems was arrested for being an Anabaptist. He is from the Netherlands. And he. Uh, he had come to be an Anabaptist and even hosted worship services in his home uh, to support the Anabaptist movement. And so when both the Calvinist and the Catholic leaders in town decided to crack down on this, you're just not, everybody's going to get arrested. If the Calvinists and the Catholics agree that we're going to hunt down and arrest, it's just going to happen. And so, yeah, Willems is, is arrested, sent to, to jail. They, they've taken an old 
palace and convert it into a jail. They'd taken all the rooms and walled them up and everything. And it was nasty. But uh, after being there for a couple of weeks, he makes it the, the classic, makes a rope out of knotted cloths thing. <laughs> Climbs down the window. And because it's kind of thrown together jail, he's able to, to, to eventually work the bars away from the window. Straight out of like Prince Valiant, man. This is just a little... Climbs down, starts to run across a frozen pond with this guard in hot pursuit. Now, Willems had lost a lot of weight. He'd been nearly starved uh, in, in prison. So he could get across the ice. The guard was heavy. And so the guard falls through the ice. You're Willems. What do you do? You turn around and you save the guard. You're free. The only guy chasing you is in the ice. Willem says, I can't let him die. So he turns around, saves the guy, drags his hypothermic body back to shore, covers him with his own cloak to make sure that the guy's okay. So, of course, the guard's like, you get to leave. <laughs> you get to go, man. That is totally... No, we're not doing this to you. Unfortunately, by the time he does that, the Burgermeister had arrived with his troops. The Burgermeister says, all criminals must face justice. Willems is a, is, a, is a criminal. We're taking him back. So over the next several months, Willems is tortured, but he refuses to recant, and eventually is burned at the stake in May because he turned back to save somebody. Willems has become this folk hero in Aspen, in, in the Netherlands. Even amongst people who'd say, well, I don't really much like Anabaptists. You go, what about Dirk Willems? They go, man, he's the guy that makes me go, I don't want to be an Anabaptist, but man, I like them. These are the guys... Everybody else, everybody else would have just kept running. These are the guys that say, I don't care. I don't care what happens to me. I'm saving this guy. Oh, I wanted to be free. Broke out of the prison. But what kind of an Anabaptist would I be? What kind of a, let's get back to what Jesus is saying kind of person do I want to be if I didn't turn back to save him. It's a simple story. There's not a lot of details to it. I wish I could go into more detail. But just, I really like this guy. This is, this is, this is my kind of Christian martyr. But it's not just standing up for Jesus, but standing up when you go, you could have left. Yeah. Fifteen seventy, Pope Pius V issued uh, a, a bull called "Reigning on High," Regnans in Excelsis, encouraging English Catholics to rebel against Elizabeth, who's a pseudo-Protestant. She's not even a strong Protestant. In fact, she even reinstituted some different Catholicy things. But he's like, "Yep, yep, yep." Even if you've sworn an oath before God that you will obey the Queen, quote, "We charge and command all and individually the nobles, subjects, peoples, and any others." that they should not dare obey her orders, mandates, or laws. Those who shall act to the contrary, we shall include in her similar sentence of excommunication. If you do not rebel against the queen, even if you have made a, a if you've sworn before God that you will support her, if you do not rebel against the queen, you're excommunicated from the Catholic Church. So I haven't had enough problems with religious wars. See, this is why this, is, this section is entitled The Religious Wars. You know? Yeah! Now! But wasn't, wasn't she the one who tried hard not to Make an announcement. Yep. She's Protestant, but she's like, I'm not going to be an obnoxious Protestant. We're going to be very Catholic about our Protestantism. And so she's like, okay, not anymore. I'm going to be Protestant. Yeah. Ironically, she's like, okay, enough of you, Rome. I was trying very hard not to not to be obnoxious, but I think we're done with you. And all the English Catholics are so upset about this, the Jesuits petition the Pope going, could you please stop it? Please? Yeah, the Jesuits are like, you're just making everything harder on us. I mean, not only is it harder for us to make people want to be Catholic, 
But even the Catholics that are Catholic are going, this stinks! Could you please stop this? Which the next Pope, Pope Gregory the uh, the Eighth, sort of does. Or eighth, I'm sorry, thirteenth, sort of does in 1580. He says, "Tell you what, I'm not rescinding a papal bull because I can't because every time the Pope says something on his magic chair, it's God talking. So I can't rescind it because that would mean that the Pope did something wrong, which he can't. What I will say is, tell you what, we'll put it on hold." The order is still there, but it'll kick in when it's obvious that Elizabeth is no longer under God's provision. If, if her reign starts to fizzle, that's when you need to do this. That's I'm sure that's what Pope Pius meant by this. And God, and God, because again, this is this isn't just a note saying, by the way, this is a papal bull. This is from God Himself through the Pope. So I can't rescind it, but we'll tweak it. Yeah, 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 a little bit. Just a little bit. 1571, I can't get past 1571. Because Randy, I can't Dutch Reformed Church. Founded and ended in Germany. 1571. And everybody goes, yay! Go do yay! Okay. See, so other stuff is going on, right? Other stuff is going on while it's going on. But 1571, because that's where, yeah. Um, it's a Dutch in the sense of a Pennsylvania Dutch, no, which is actually Deutsch. No, that's what I thought originally, because I'm like, really? It's in Germany? But um, the Netherlands is still kind of, still very Catholic in a lot of ways. I mean, Dirk Willems was killed by Catholics. So it's still it's still very Catholic. Even the, even the Calvinists are not well <laughs> respected there. So I, I, as near as I can tell, they, did it, they, they had their little synod in Germany, because to do that so openly in the Netherlands would have been... Sticky. <laughs> Do you understand that better as to why it started in Germany? I don't. Okay. That's the impression I got. That's the impression. But yeah, that's what I thought too. Is I'm like, Deutsch? Reformed Church? No, no, Dutch. It's in the Netherlands. But no. uh, all right. 1571. We've made our way back up to 1571. And like I said, the Ottomans fight the Battle of Lepanto. We want to try to end this Turkish threat. We want to get, try to get rid of it once and for all. So the Pope says, all the Catholic maritime kingdoms, all the Catholic kingdoms that are on the Mediterranean, except for France, who's too busy fighting France, right? Uh -huh. All the French are fighting all the French. But everybody else, you're all one big purple league, one holy league, and we're going to set sail to help save the Venetian-held island of Cyprus, because Venice says, hey, let's do a crusade to save Cyprus. Kind of like Spain said, hey, let's do a crusade to save Tripoli. Is all of that dark spot, all of that's the same green color? And the purple's yeah. going over to save that little island yeah. that's in the middle of all of that green? Yeah. Yes. No. Uh, anyway, yeah. this may not work. I get you. I, I'm feeling okay. it. No, I just wanted to make sure I was seeing the colors correctly. Yep. Okay. One <laughs> goes, we have Cyprus! We have Cyprus! You Can you hold it? No. Europe! Europe, help! Alright, so, they're all going to, the Holy League, all these purple countries, they're all going to come together, and they're going to go help Venice in Cyprus. And then they lost it. This, that did not work at all. And they, that's, I know, go figure. Go figure, it goes green. <laughs> but they re-engaged the Turks at Lepanto. Okay? Because the, the, Turk, 
They were over here, the Turkish Navy is sitting over here in the Aegean, so as they're coming back to Europe after having lost Cyprus, they run into the Turkish Navy. And so they're like, we're going to fight the Turkish Navy, because we lost Cyprus, we've got we to gain something. 206 Catholic galleys met 206 Turkish galleys. Wow. Seriously, the same number? The exact same number. They had other ancillary ships, but in terms of the main fighting ships, the galleys, 206 versus 206. But the Catholic ships' guns outnumbered them 3 to 1. Lots more guns on their galleys. Well, that's the thing. I love how you have all the Catholic ships from the night with Mary there. And then you've got the, the Turkish ships in the dark, coming from the dark and east. So, um, the Christians lost 50 galleys in the fight. The Turks lost almost all of theirs. They lost 30,000 sailors in this one battle. Uh, the Christians lost 7,500. In one battle? In one battle. They That's were enormous. utterly annihilated. So they went back to Istanbul. They rebuilt their navy. But this is the thing. Going back to what you were talking about. They could rebuild the navy. But where do you get the sailors? You lost 30,000 sailors. You don't have enough men. You can build the ships. You've got the money. You've got the shipbuilders. But who do you put on? If you've got maybe one or two experienced sailors on every ship, by the time you get to 1580, they just left the ships to rot in the harbor. Like, we're done. We just can't rebuild this enough. Well, and how many people did they lose back in 1565? I mean, they're just... About, well, 32,000? I mean, they're just getting pounded on and pounded on and pounded on. And so the Ottoman Empire, never again a sea threat. I mean, can, can you imagine from... The Battle of Jerba, where they, they become the Mediterranean Sea, the Ottomans control the Mediterranean, to 1571, 11 years later, nothing. They're done in the Mediterranean. It's a huge decade, huge decade, from we're going to lose everything, to they're stopped at Malta, to they're destroyed at Lepanto. We might actually win this. This big green threat that's moving forward, from now on, starts moving backwards. This is... This decade changed everything when it comes to the Islamic control of Europe. Everything when it comes to Christendom. And so, yes, that's why they had that picture with, with Mary and, and, the, and, the, and the ships. Because they sit there and they go, God himself fought for us this decade. God turned back the Turks in this one decade. Is this kind of as important as far as, the, you know, when we say, like, World War II, that if we wouldn't have beat Hitler, we'd all be speaking German? Yep. Is that the same as that we would be all Islam and understand? Sure. Yeah. Uh, In a sense. Sort. I mean, except that these aren't these are these are militant Muslims, but they're not militantly Islamic. And this it's not these these aren't these aren't. Um, it's politically. Important. Yes, it's more politically. I mean, it is a there is a religious component to it, but these aren't these aren't people going ah oh, we must do this for Allah. They might be chanting that, but it's also I want more green. So. 1572. St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in Paris. This is another huge moment. Um, in fact, uh, this is probably the biggest, ugliest moment in the French Wars of Religion. I want to come back to that next week as to what happened there and why. But again, how would you define this point in history from a political standpoint, but maybe even more so from a church standpoint? You're a Christian church. You're, you're you. Your Christian views sitting in Europe, what are you feeling is going on this past decade? I feel like the whole thing is saying, if you don't believe in God the way I do, you need to be dead. Yep. 
That's exactly what everybody is saying. Except for the Anabaptists who are saying, I just don't want to eat with you. How can you go and kill somebody in the name of thinking that? I mean, that's the mindset. You have to be able to But then again, I can't imagine how you could, even if you're talking about Allah as opposed to uh, Yahweh, I can't imagine how you'd say, for the glory of, of Allah, I will set you on fire. Right. And film it. Right. I, I can't picture that. I'm going to hand a child a bomb, strap it to his belly, and tell him to walk into a crowded bus depot. For him to die along with him. Yeah. I, I, can't, I can't fathom that, but that's, that's the world we live in even today. So this isn't a 500 years ago thing. This is also a today. What else? You're a Christian. What? How do you feel about this this decade? I guess a couple of weeks ago, y'all will know the quote. I had to look it up to get it right, but it, that it's uh, beware that when fighting monsters, you do not you yourself do not become a monster. But when you get on into the abyss, the abyss gates is also into you. It seemed like the Reformation started off on a good note. Right? I mean, wanting to make good changes, and then we read about Protestants doing the exact same things. Uh, that Catholics were doing, that Muslims were doing, it just starting with a good idea and becoming that which you were kind of fighting against. You can make an argument as as uh, as Jefferson did that even if revolution now and now and then is a good thing, all revolutions institutionalize. No matter what idealism you start with, it becomes the institution. You become the man. If you win, if you win your revolution, you become the man, which is part of why Fidel Castro always were fatigues. One of the arguments he used at one point is he's like, but we're always fighting the revolution. You can't win the revolution. If you win the revolution, you now become the state. If you're the state, somebody will do a revolution against you. No, no. You've always got to be doing a revolution. Yep. Yes. Exactly how it's going to work as unpredictable, but I'm with Jefferson and you go, I can pretty much predict if you win the revolution, you will become the state. You will become the man. You will institutionalize. And there's a reason why institutions had settled into what you are rebelling against. You will probably settle into very similar areas, at least in some things. Maybe that you can't predict exactly how it's going to be, but you're probably going to settle into that. You need to be careful. As a Christian, what does that suggest to you? As an individual. Forget the church for just a moment. As an individual. God works in your life, and you... There's a revolution. God changes everything. You are changed. You are. You become a new creation in Christ. Everything is new. What does that suggest about what can happen? Stop being so belligerent. <laughs> I'm not 
the one being belligerent. You're the one raising your voice. I am not. I believe you've just created an argument, by the way. You know, the argument you were trying to avoid, right? But going back to even even when I was getting at with the revolution since institutionalized, I'm amazed at how many times people have gone to a retreat. They'll come home and they'll be like, my life is changed. God changed me. And I want to go, yay. And I've seen people's lives be changed, fundamentally changed. But it's amazing to me how often I will see somebody come back and go, my life has changed. And a month later, it's exactly the way it was before. Or it's a little different, but they've taken all the new stuff and put it in all the old boxes. All the, all the new wine and put it in all the old wineskins. And so you go, I now... I now do the exact same X, Y, and Z that I've always done, but now I do it for Jesus. But it's the same X, Y, and Z you've always done. Yeah, for Jesus. Yeah, but the X, Y, and Z were part of the problem. You kind of need to continue always reforming. Remember the Reformation? Reformed, always reforming, the motto of the Reformation? We kind of need to always be doing that. Anybody who sits there and goes, well, I've arrived. Did Paul even say that? Wrote half the New Testament and says, I haven't arrived. I'm constantly having to reevaluate things and work on things. <laughs> in the same way you look at this and you say, to be a Christian, to be a Bible-believing Christian now is to get hunted. Whether by the, by the Turks or by the church or by other Protestants or what have you. Somebody out there is not going to like it if you actually try to stand for the gospel. And yet, we keep seeing groups growing. The Huguenots are hunted in their own country and their church is growing. Dirk Loams was arrested, thrown into prison, got away, turned back around, saved his, his pursuer, and died as a result, and still refused to recant even under torture. Time and again, it's a nasty point in history, but at the same time, go back to the flip side of what you were saying, people getting pushed, at the same time, it's a nasty point in history, but people standing for their faith and really living it out, saying, this is important, I'm willing to die for this. We live in a society that makes living out your faith relatively easy. So we tend not to. We tend to remain comfortable because we're already vaguely comfortable. When you're already going to be uncomfortable, it's a lot easier to go, I might as well just do this right. So I encourage you to stop and think, as you pray for things, as you think about how to live, stop and think about all the people that have gone before you in the church and say, I need to make sure I continue God's revolution every day in me. And i got to make sure that I'm not so comfortable in this world that I ape it because I want to remain comfortable. I need to make sure that I keep reforming and I keep changing and I keep living this out even if it makes my relatively comfortable life uncomfortable. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for... I thank you for history. I thank you for the longitudinal... Um, faith in you that we have had as a church, as, a, as a, a family of Christ. I pray, Lord, that you help each one of us to actually live that out in our lives. Help us to be the people that honor you. Sculpt us into the people you have desired us to be. And I pray that you do that sculpting every day. Help none of us feel like we've been a Christian long enough or we do it well enough that we no longer need to be chiseled. I pray, Lord, never finish that sculpture. In Jesus' name. Amen.